Okay, Revelation chapter 15. And when you're turning there, I'm going to do a little catch-up. And so, if you remember, when you get to Revelation, there's going to be seven seals that Christ opens. Christ has this book and in his hand, and it is the book of what's going to bring to consummation uh, the time of rebellion on earth, and then his kingdom is going to be established. You go back to the book of Daniel, and you see the successive kingdoms, and the last one is going to be the one cut without hands, and it's going to come and destroy the Gentile kingdoms, and Christ's kingdom is going to spread throughout the world. So that's speaking about the millennial kingdom. And so when you look at in, in, in Revelation and you have the, the seven seals of this book, so as each seal is opened, then the events transpire, or the information is given to us, the events transpire. So I want you to have a visual in your mind. We don't know exactly the timing of each seal, but we do know when you get to the seventh. So start over here, so chronologically, you have the seals open, and when you get to the seventh seal, inside the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. So instead of going chronologically this way, go chronologically down. And inside the seven trumpets, when you get to the seventh trumpet, which is all inside the seventh seal. When you get to the seventh trumpet down here, you have the seven vials. And probably, I'm saying probably because nobody knows, probably you're within the last weeks of the seven-year tribulation period, and these things just happen like that. I mean, they just happen one right after another, and then the world is judged. And one of the reasons we'll see if we get into chapter 16 is one of the reasons is that when, when these bowls, uh, depending on your translation, when these bowls are poured out or these vials are poured out upon the earth, mankind couldn't survive very long. And so it's probably an immediate preparation for the coming of Christ. When we went through chapter 12 through 14, uh, we saw the overview of the tribulation, and now we're coming to the judgment of the wrath of God being poured out and, and serious, serious things you find in these chapters. Chapter 15 is the shortest in the book of Revelation, but very, very uh, instructive. So read with me, if you would, chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. The wrath of God. And we, I spoke last week to you about the, the righteousness of the wrath of God. So in, the, in these is the, the last plagues, which teaches us that all the other plagues that have come, and the word plague in my translation actually, actually means blow. It's a blow. So it's a blow to the earth. We, we think of plague like we've just gone through the, the virus and the pandemic and we think of a plague as like a plague of locusts or something, but this is the blow. This is what the word means to, to the earth. Um, I was reading John Phillips' commentary, and he inserts here a part of Shakespeare out of the, the, the play Julius Caesar. And listen to what he says. So this is a character speaking to Cicero. 
And he says, are you not moved when all the way of the earth shakes like a thing and firm? Oh, Cicero, I have seen tempest when the scolding winds have riveted the naughty oaks. And I have seen the ambiguous ocean swell and rage and foam to be exalted with threatening clouds. But never till tonight, never till now, did I go through a tempest dropping fire. Either there is civil strife in heaven or else the world too saucy with the gods incensed them to sin destruction. <clears throat> well, this is not the gods, plural. This is the God. This is the God sending destruction. And we're going to say in this chapter that this is the time of the end because there's no more grace when and and. It's a terrible time. It's a terrible time when the world faces this, and, and yet um, man is still unrepentant at this time. So read with me um, about these plagues. In verse 2, I saw something like the sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So here is what John sees, and he sees these people who have come out of the tribulation, and, and they are before the Lord, and, they have harp, and, they're, and they're singing, and they, verse 3, sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifest. When we think about the Song of Moses, um, the, the Song of Moses was sung by Israel when they came through the Red Sea, and they were delivered, and they knew they were delivered, they were very aware, and so you had the Song of Moses then in Exodus. And you have the Song of the Lamb. We saw that back in chapter 5 of Revelation. And again, let me quote John Phillips. This is what John Phillips says. He said, The Song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The Song of the Lamb was sung at the Crystal Sea. The Song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The Song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The Song of Moses told how God brought his people out. And the Song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people out. In the Song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The Song of the Lamb is the last. The Song of Moses commemorated the execution of the foe, the expectation of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord. The Song of the Lamb deals with the same three themes, which are um, the execution of the foe, the expectation of the saints, the exaltation of the Lord. When we read here that in, in, in verse uh, 2 down through 4, the, the, the Lord's going to vindicate the saints. He's going to vindicate the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through these last plagues uh, upon the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of the coming judgment. They, they foreseen, you read Peter, that they didn't understand all that they prophesied, but they foresaw a day where the nations would be judged and Christ would be exalted, or, the, or God would be exalted. And they, they saw the millennial kingdom. They didn't, again, didn't see it as 
exact, but they saw the kingdom of the Lord being manifest on the earth. God gave them that, that vision. And again, Peter says that they didn't always even know what they prophesied. But, but you remember, Abraham looked forward to a city whose builder was God. So they understood that this is coming. God gave them the revelation enough to know that this is coming and they prophesied. Isaiah 13, and there's probably, I could give you a hundred of these. Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Joel 1, 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is nigh, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Well, we have come to the place of revelation that we're at that time. We're, we're at that time that these last plagues come, and they come quickly, and then Christ comes. And that's what John sees here is these last judgments. Read with me now in, in verse 5. We see the preparation for these judgments. After these things, I look and behold, the temple of the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was opened. Again, remember when the instruction was given to Moses to build the tabernacle, and it, it, the pattern was the, was the temple in heaven. So, and the, so he was given these instructions to pattern the tabernacle and then later the temple after the temple in heaven. So when we have the temple of the testimony, that is where, where God dwells. That is the, in, in the tabernacle itself, there was the holy place where the priest would go, they go, they burn, and then there was the Holy of Holies. It was the last, I think it was 20 cubits by 20 cubits, and that's where the ark was, and no one could go in there but the high priest once a year taking a bowl of blood, sprinkling it on the altar, sprinkling it on the ark of the covenant, and, and, and the Shekinah glory of God resided there initially. And it did in the tabernacle, and it did in the temple. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament... And then, when Israel got so involved in idolatry, the Shekinah glory of God left. But, but here, they couldn't, you know, God's spirit be worshipped in spirit and truth, but the Shekinah glory was evident to the nation of Israel. And when John sees this, there is a place that's not restricted. You know, we're, again, we're restricted to the earth, so it's not a... But, but God dwells, God is a spirit, and, and he can be worshipped in spirit and truth, but his presence is made, is made not, I'm not going to say visible, but his presence is acknowledged in heaven, and, and, and that's what it is we find in verse 4. It's the temple, the tabernacle, of the testimony of God. And, and so when this is opened... And we read in verse 6, and out of the temple came the seven angels. So that's the presence of God. So out, out of this temple, and we've already read the description of the presence of God in heaven, in Revelation. So when this temple is opened, the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, having their chest girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So these last four angels, they come from the presence of God. They come out of the presence of God, and they are agents of doom. And, and yet, they're clothed in linen, and it shows that what they're doing is righteous. 
that even though they're going to destroy the earth and destroy the people of the earth, what they're doing is righteous, and they're doing it because God is holy and righteous, and his wrath is righteous wrath. And, and so we see this through their description, and they're acting in obedience to God even in the judgment that they bring. So one of the four living creatures before God, uh, some of the commentators said this is probably the one, you know, one had the face of a man, one had the face of an ox, one had the face of an eagle, and one had the face of a lion, if I remember correctly. They said this is probably the one who had the face of a man. Probably. Uh, doesn't tell us there. Because man is the one who's created such havoc upon the earth. It is man's sin that brought the curse even upon the creation of, it, of the world itself, the, the created part of, of the world. So here, they, they bring these bowls full of the wrath of God. Uh, that's just astounding when you think about that. The, here is the wrath of God, and it's a righteous wrath, which means that it is perfect in its execution. It, it is righteous in its uh, in, in its application, so it is everything of God being holy toward the creation. And then we read this in, in verse 8, and I think this is such a significant verse. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. The time of grace is over. No one's going to enter the temple. No one's going to make intercession. Jesus Christ is no longer making intercession for the people of the earth. If you know Christ today, and I'm assuming you do, if you know Christ as Savior, you know him because he, by the Holy Spirit, opens your mind and your heart, and salvation is of God. So, we're saved today because God did a work in our lives. God opened our eyes. God renewed uh, Ephesians, Galatians. God renewed our spirit. We were dead. We were dead in Christ. We were we were dead to Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people can't respond. But but God did a work in our heart, and the Spirit worked in us and, 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 and made us aware of God and brought us to a place of conviction and faith, and we were saved, but it's a work of God. That, when, when we read verse 8, that day is over. It is over. No one else on the earth, in my opinion, as I interpret that, no one else on the earth is going to get saved from this time forward. Uh, not until the millennial kingdom, but at this point in time, when the judgment's coming, grace has ended. Their faith is settled. Jeremiah 8.20 said, The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. How, how sad. How sad. And then you come to chapter 16. Chapter 16 is the description of the bowls being poured out. These are the vials being poured out upon the earth. And we'll go through them quickly, not talk about a lot, but talk about the, the comments that the Holy Spirit makes in this, in this text. Then I heard a voice, uh, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And now you have um, the first three judgments down through verse 7, and I'm going to just read it. 
You read it with me. So the first went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Some of these have a similarity to the judgments that came upon Egypt. Uh, there some similarity of the judgment that came upon Egypt during the time of the Exodus. Verse 4, Then the third angel poured out his bowl of the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. You remember we've seen now a couple different times that when, when the temple of heaven is open and you have the vid, you, you see the prayers of the saints that are there and they are as incense before God. And when, when, this, when this happened, it's hard for us to imagine what, what happens when there is no water available, when there is no pure water to drink. Some of the people in our church have been involved down in Honduras and Guatemala about drilling wells for people who have no water. And, but imagine even what water they have in, in their village tap, or if they could go to a church and there's a well there at a church, but the people in the neighborhood get their water from that well. But they go there, and it's blood. It's polluted. And, and there is no other water. We thought we were in a crisis a while back when we couldn't buy bottled water. You couldn't find bottled water anywhere. And uh, so we had a relative down in San Angelo, and then their city water system got tainted. And one day I went and bought about a pickup load of water. We were going to take it down to them, and finally they got their water fixed. And so, But, you know, you understand, it's not just that we don't have bottled water. There is no water. All the water coming out of your tap is tainted. All the water is polluted with blood. Imagine what that does. See, society, society can't, can't survive. People, the world can't survive when the seas and all the springs and, and all of that is polluted. You could drink it, but soon it would kill you. I'm not a medical person. I don't know what it would do to you, but soon it would, it would, it would kill you. You remember Jesus said, unless these times were cut short, no one would survive. And, and when he says cut short, he doesn't mean that he's cutting short his timetable. It just means that his timetable is coming to a quick end. And if not, no one would survive. They wouldn't survive the judgment that, that's coming, in the, and they need to be alive for the things to happen that's going to happen uh, coming in, in the rest of chapter 16. So, verse 7, and I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And I think the Holy Spirit gives us this commentary to remind us that these terrible things are happening on the earth, but it, it is the righteous judgment of God. It is the right thing happening at this time. And it is the right thing, as, as, as terrible as it is, Upon mankind, it is the right thing because it, it, it glorifies God in his judgment. The world has thumbed their nose at him. Now, since man fell and, and you go through all this time 
and, and no one cares about the Lord, no one acknowledges him, and so righteous judgment falls. I was reading this morning, and I don't have it in the notes, but I want to read to you out of Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to start in 17. It's not going to be on the board, so just listen as I read. This I say, therefore, and testify of the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Now, here's Paul saying to the church, who this is a Gentile church, and he's saying to the church, the rest of the Gentile, the way they walk, and the futility of their mind. Okay, here's the, here's the key. We consider sin, we think, when we think about sin, we think about, you know, you have a category, I have a category. Uh, we, we think about, you know, murder and robbery, and uh, we, we think about, and today maybe even sexual sin or homosexuality, or we, we, think, about, we think about tangible sin. But all those things are an outworking of the futility of the mind of a person. All those are outworking of the rebellion of the heart. They're sin and they're, they're going to be judged, but, but they're the outworking. I, I, if you grasp that difference, then, then listen to what he says. You should no longer work in the rest of the Gentiles, walk in the rest of the Gentiles, walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanliness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. You read Romans chapter 1, and Romans chapter 1 teaches us that every person has an innate knowledge of God, that when they knew God, what Romans says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but became vain in their imaginations and glorified the creature rather than the creator. So that's rebellion. See, that's idolatry. And the idol is self. The idol is myself. And, and so the problem that when people are being judged for their sin, when we're reading this at the end of, at the, end of the tribulation time and the world is going to be judged terribly and, and millions and billions of people are going to die, and the rest are going to be uh, cast into hell. Uh, when we read that and we think, well, that's not loving God, but they're rebellious. They're rebellious against God. Um, it, so that's why the Spirit like puts in verse 5, and then at the end of verse 7, your righteous, your, 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 your judgments are true, and righteous are your judgments. We need to be reminded that God is righteous and people are in rebellion. Against him, it's not just that they have the weakness of the flesh and they sin. I have the weakness of the flesh and I sin, and and you do too. But that's not rebellion. I don't want to sin. I don't want to dishonor God, and I I want to honor Him. And so, that's the that's the world of difference. So where are we? We're in verse eight, and verse eight has the fourth and fifth judgments. Verse eight down through verse eleven. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over those plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and, and his kingdom because uh, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. 
They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. You see those two comments that the Holy Spirit gives to us um, back in at verse 9, at the end of the verse, when, when these things are happening to them, they did not repent and give God glory. And then at the end of verse 11, or verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven, so they knew where the judgment's coming from. Now remember, the angel has just flown. When we've seen that the angel has flown through the heavens, saying to people, repent, for the kingdom of God has come. And, and so the angel has given a warning to every person upon the earth and this is their, their last warning, and they're not repentant. And, and the, the Spirit of God keeps telling us this in the text. They're not repentant. They're not repentant. And I, and I mean, I, you know, I keep hammering on that because it helps us to have a balance and understanding and, and not feeling bad about the judgment of God, not feeling bad about the righteousness of God and pouring out his wrath upon the earth when we see it coming. I believe God is doing that today. I believe to some measure that, that God is doing that. God always holds people accountable for sin to some degree. Um, I, I don't know how to convey my thoughts to you. You read, you read in Romans that at, at, at the previous time God overlooked sin, which means he didn't wipe out the world. Now, he did one time, if you remember, under under the the great flood, but but since then, it said that God overlooked sin, and but now He's commanded all men everywhere to repent, and I think it's Romans nine. So God's commanded all men everywhere to repent. So now, Christ has come, and we're held accountable. We're held accountable for the knowledge that we have even today, and and so to whatever degree that I. If I was an unsaved person, to whatever degree I don't honor the Lord and acknowledge Him, I'm held accountable in my soul. Now, not, 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 I'm not put to death, which I will be one day, and be cast into hell one day, but I'm living in a part of a hell. When you live, when you live your life separate from the God that you know that's there, you condemn yourself to live and a hell that you created. That makes sense to you. I, I don't know how to I don't know how to convey it any, any better than that. But let, let me give you a different illustration. Okay, I happen to be married, been married for a long, long time, and to whatever degree that I don't have the right spirit and Donna doesn't have the right spirit, we live in a I don't want to say a hell because you'd get the wrong impression. But we but we live in a tension. Instead of living in the bliss of matrimony, we live in a tension. Okay? You know, the truth is, I can have tension with you on Sunday and go home and live the rest of the week and not really think about it. Now, I may think about it a little bit, but, you know, but I, but I don't really think about it. But if I'm having tension with Donna, it's there. It's present. She's there. And I'm there. And the tension's there. Okay, it's the same principle. If you apply that to, I'm a creator of God, but I don't, I don't worship him. I refuse to worship him. I'm living in a tension, I'm, and I call it a hell. I'm living in a hell of my own rebellion and are unaware of it. That, now, does that make sense to you? And, and so people, so the outworking is that 
people commit sin to find some measure of satisfaction. They commit sin to find some measure of, of, of fullness and, and maybe joy and maybe... And I'm not saying that every unbeliever is an out-and-out sinner. I'm, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying is that they, they live without the sense of being accepted by God. See, one of, the, one of the benefits that we have as Christians is that we have the peace of God and peace with God. Okay, so I have the peace of God. The world's falling apart. I think the U.S. is falling apart. But I have the peace of God. I have the peace of God in my heart because God's in control. He's allowing that to happen. So I have the peace of God in my heart. When I sin, I have the peace with God because Christ is my Savior. When I sin, I repent. When I give in to the weakness of the flesh or the pride of life, I am acknowledged that from the Scripture and I repent. I have peace with God. I know I'm forgiven. I know I don't deserve to be forgiven, but I am forgiven. Christ paid for that. And, and so when you live with that, you're living with a piece of heaven, and unsaved people do not have that. Unsaved people can try to justify themselves based upon how you live or how other people live. They can try to justify themselves based upon uh, how, how maybe, maybe good deeds they do or any other thing. But they can never have peace. They can never have the peace of God and never have peace with God. How sad is that? And, and yet, when you come to this place, they are unrepentant. The, 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 the Holy Spirit keeps telling us they are unrepentant. They are unrepentant. They refuse to glorify God. They acknowledge this is God. They blaspheme Him because of what He's doing, but they will not repent. How terrible is this? When you come... And there are billions of people who are under these judgments, and they will not repent. And so you come to verse 12. Verse 12 has the sixth judgment. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters were dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. The kings of the east. The kings of the east are going to come, and you remember uh, previously in Revelation, there are like 200 million released, and we don't know if they're soldiers or if they're creatures or, or what they're for, demonic. But, but here, when the Euphrates drive up, you have the map of the Middle East in your mind. To the east now today is China, Japan, India, you know, all those are the east. And they're going to become involved in the last worldwide conflict. When Euphrates is dried up, it's a preparation for the battle of Armageddon, or the war of Armageddon. It's hard for me. I want you to remember all that we, all that we, where we've been, and, and what happens is the, the Antichrist takes over in the revived Roman Empire, uh, I think America is a world power today. I, I think the rapture takes away the power of America. When the rapture takes place and the Christians are gone, there's going to be rioting and looting and, and lawlessness, and America will use her military to control the population. That's just my opinion. That's, that's my opinion. I mean, we already see that to some degree, do we not? 
And so I think what, what, what happens, so America is no longer a superpower. In my, in my mind, I'm just telling you, this is my opinion. And, and so what happens, the Antichrist then has consolidated his power in the kingdom. We've seen that already in Revelation. He has these ten-nation kingdoms, three of them are ascendancy. But he's in control. And he's made a peace pact with Israel, which starts the tribulation. And that starts the actual time clock of the seven years, which is the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks of prophecy for the Jewish nation. And so this time clock has started. And during the first three and a half years, I, I think there's great prosperity in, in the Antichrist kingdom, and he's doing well. And, uh, and uh, then there's the problem with the Jews. And there's just this pro- problem with the Jews. And, and so he had made a pact to protect them, but then he himself breaks the pact. Why? Because he hates God and they love God and, and, or, or they acknowledge God. If, if each individual Jew doesn't love God, the nation still <laughs> acknowledges that this is our history. We are God's people. So he goes to the temple, he declares himself God, and begins to persecute the Jews. And so now... As you used to say, the fat's in the fire, and here the world is going to come to what we've been reading is all this conf- confrontation among the nations. And so the nations see their opportunity, and, and so they're going together to battle in, in this valley of Megiddo, and it's Armageddon is going to take place. Armageddon is not one battle, it's going to be a war. And, and as they come together, then, in preparation for Christ to come. They don't know they're coming together in preparation for Christ to come, but this is what happens. So this is a, a preparation. This is the sixth seal. And this is so significant. Uh, or, no, go to verse 13. Then we see, let me see where I am. Verse 13 and 14, under the sixth seal. All right, go to 12 again. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the, on the great river Euphrates. I've been calling it a seal, but it's a bowl. And its water were dried up so the way the kings from the east might be prepared. Now listen to this. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole earth to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So this is the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity have these spirit, demonic spirits that go out from them, representative of them. So this is Satan, the beast of the sea, the beast of the earth, and, and the unholy trinity. And they go to the nations of the earth, and, and, and they get them to come to battle. They, they, they entice them to come. And, and man is greedy. We read that in Ephesians. You know, man is greedy. And, and so they come. They want spoil. That's what... That's what the nations want today. We, the nations want power. Politicians want power. Now, that are politicians correct. I don't mean to say that, but that's the nature of it. And you remember again, when Daniel saw these kingdoms, he saw them as ferocious beasts that would tear and rip and devour the others. And, and that's what human power does outside of Christ. And that is so significant when we read that, that Christ comments on it. In verse 15, Behold, I am coming as a thief. 
Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. During this time, there are still saved people on the earth. There are still people who haven't been martyred, and, and maybe they live in far reaches from Europe or whatever, and they can survive even though they can't buy or sell because they don't have the mark of the beast, but they survive. And the Lord himself gives them a warning and an encouragement when he said to them, Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And, and, and basically what he's saying, you keep the faith. You know, he's not speaking about physical nakedness. He's talking about faith. And, and the Lord is saying, when all these terrible things are happening, those who are still on the earth, he, he's saying to them, I, I want you to know that you can stay faithful. You can remain faithful. Blessed are you if you do. And how he wanted to encourage them when they are themselves going through this persecution. And then verse 16, um, we come to the gathering of the nations. And they gathered them, so these frogs or spirits, unclean spirits, go to the nation, and they gathered them to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Okay, so this is this valley. This is this valley in Israel, and it's a uh, Napoleon said it was a perfect place to have a, a war. And so you have this valley in Israel, and they're gathered together. And then we read this in verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. It is done. The judgment of God has come to the full. That's what it is done means. It's come to the full. So, so this is... Again, we got to the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven vials, and now we're to the end. We're in the last days of, of this tribulation time, and so the voice says, it is done. It is done. Now, it's not completely done, but it's as good as done, because these, these, these blows from these vials have been hitting the earth, and, 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 and if, if God doesn't make it, if God doesn't bring it to a finish, no one's going to survive. And so, verse 18, there are noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. I've never really been in an earthquake other than, I guess I have, because one night a few months ago, we were woken up. There's one over toward no trees or somewhere, between here and Odessa, I guess it was. And so we actually felt it. But uh, my kids have been in one, uh, my son and daughter-in-law out in California, that really shook things off the walls and overturned his fish tank and, you know, all those things. That seemed to be the most significant thing he cared about. And, you know, so, but, it, and it's scary, but earthquakes are scary, I've been told. They're very scary because you don't know where to run, you don't know what to do. And imagine this. So now there's an earthquake like it has never been. You've probably been seeing on the news about that condominium building complex that collapsed in Florida, and how, how frightening, how, how devastating. And, you know, if you're dwelling in the other half that didn't fall, and how frightening now you would stay there, and, you know, you wonder what's going to happen. And it's just it's just ter- terrible time. But when we read this, nothing like this has ever happened. In verse 18, a mighty and great earthquake that has not occurred since men were on the earth. 
And now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Not just one building, but the cities of the nations fell. This is going to be so shaken that when you go to Dallas and see the Dallas skyline, and those buildings are going to fall. Midland's the tall city. Those buildings are going to fall. It's just astounding that this could happen. And, and yet this is the, the, the judgment of the Lord coming. And, and that, that's why it has to be cut short or it has to come to an end or no one is, is going to survive. We read in verse 19, the great city was divided into three parts. Commentators are, are not agreed on whether that's Jerusalem or whether that's Babylon. Because Babylon's fiction to be spoken about for the next two chapters. So is it Babylon, or and Babylon is representative of the evil systems of the world. Babylon is representative as the anti antichrist and, and all of the power of evil and rebellion, and, and not not just as a city. At this at this point in time, Babylon has not been rebuilt. Babylon was never actually destroyed. Babylon just drifted. Okay, so it's like the Roman Empire. And Babylon is representative of that. Roman Empire was never conquered. It just drifted into being ineffective and drifted into being having no power at all until it's revived during this latter time. And we're seeing a little bit of that re, re, being revived in the European Union and in the... In the uh, coming together of, of Europe to some degree, not, not, not much, and I'm not prophesying, but we're seeing a little bit of that happening. Okay, so the great city, whether it's Jerusalem, it's divided into three parts, this big earthquake, the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Babylon is representative of everything that has been against God, from the fall of man. They go out and build cities. Nimrod goes and builds said, you know, and, and you know, so they it's, it's been in rebellion against God. So the world has been in rebellion against God. And Babylon is representative of that. Babylon's everything evil and everything that is <clears throat> anti-God. So Babylon's remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine or the fierceness of his wrath, end of verse 19, and that every island fled away and the mountains were not found. When this earthquake comes, the topography of the earth is changed. It, 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 it is like every, everything's going to be open to God. You remember we read back, um, I, I don't know what chapter it was, but when the people of the earth are seeing the wrath of God and they... They call for the mountains to, hide, to fall on them and hide them from the face of God. Well, well God's going to take all that away. And, and, and when Christ comes, the world is going to see him. There's no place to hide. And so the mountains are going to go away and our islands are going to go away. And this is going to be, when, when this earthquake comes, everything's just going to be leveled out. That's astounding. And it's hard for us to comprehend. I don't see how that can happen. If you've ever been up in Colorado and you saw those 14ers, you know, and you just think, I don't see how that can happen. But God's going to do that. And he's going to do it soon, I believe. And then it ends with this in verse 21. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, 
each hailstone about the weight of a talent. That's about 100 pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So again, once again, they know it's from God, and they blaspheme God because of that hail. You, you imagine an earthquake has come that has devastated all the buildings, and I don't know if it does the one-story buildings or not, but it devastates the cities. I don't know whether Midland is considered a city, but I think probably if it's going to devastate the cities of Dallas, Fort Worth, Lubbock, it's going to devastate Midland as well. So it devastates the cities, and then these hailstones come. A hundred, uh, you know, a hundred-pound hailstones probably be, I don't know, that big. I don't know what, how much ice it would take to be a hundred pounds or so. But it really doesn't matter. This, these, these cannonballs of hail is just going to wreak havoc upon what's left. And men will not repent. They still blaspheme God. How sad. How, how sad. Okay, we're going to end there. Uh, and uh, I, I wish I had an encouraging word. If you don't know Christ, trust him. That's my encouraging word to you today. Trust him. These things are under the hand of God. These things are, are, are the, the righteous judgment of God coming upon our world. We're going to know people who go through this. I'm going to know people who go through this. You're going to know people who go through this. And it behooves us to pray for them uh, before this takes place. It behooves us to witness to them, to love them, and uh, to tell them about Christ, uh, whatever opportunity we have to do that. Because this is real. Uh, it doesn't seem real because we haven't experienced it, but, it, but it's real. It's just as real as anything God has created. This word is just as real as John 3.16. So, you know, you can't discount it. You need to, you need to pray for our, the people you know. Pray for our church. Pray for your families. Uh, pray, pray for yourself. And, uh, and just honor God. Say, Lord, I, I know, you know, these are terrible things happening in our society today. And and, and things that make me mad, you know, and things that, but I don't want to be mad about it. I, I want to be mourning. I want to mourn. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want to mourn that, that, that our world doesn't see Christ, that our world doesn't acknowledge Christ. I want to mourn those people I know who do not acknowledge Christ. And, and then... The blessing will come because God uses that. That's part of the prayer of the saints that one day that is incense before God that brings forth a judgment. But not only does it have to bring forth judgment, it brings forth grace until that time there is no more grace. All right, pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, uh, Lord, that even though it's so hard and uh, even hard for us to understand, Lord, um, hard for us to grasp how glorious is judgment. Uh, Lord, we, we've never uh, wanted to be under judgment, uh, but Lord, we understand it uh, intellectually. Help us to uh, let our spirit honor you when we think about the judgments that are coming, that it is to your glory, it's to your majesty, and let us be encouraged in that. And we need your help in doing that by your spirit and your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, God bless you. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the fall of Babylon, the city, the, the system, um, the, the spiritual aspect. And uh, so chapter 17 and 18, Lord willing, we'll do that next week if we don't float away.